0: I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. I have received a number of questions via email and social media, direct messaging, over the last several weeks, and I decided to take an episode and answer a lot of these questions for a couple of reasons. Number one, because I just haven't had the time to respond to all of these questions, But number two, because many of the questions are actually very similar, and so this gives me an opportunity to answer these questions in a podcast format, and those who had the questions will be able to get responses all in one place. But before we get to those questions, I would like to encourage you to join us this September 15th through 17th, 2022, in Washington, D.C. for our G3 regional conference entitled Just Thinking About the Bible. Speakers will include, of course, Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, the hosts of the Just Thinking podcast, along with Josh Bice, founder and president of G3 Ministries and pastor of Praise Mill Baptist Church here in Douglasville, also James White, director of Alpha and Omega Ministries, and Steve Lawson, founder of One Passion Ministries, and then I will be speaking as well. We will be covering topics related to the important doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. A battle over the inerrancy of Scripture was fought many years ago, but the issue of the sufficiency of Scripture is one that is very weak among evangelicals today. And so this regional conference in Washington, D.C. will be focused on that topic. It looks like I'll be probably discussing the issue of the sufficiency of Scripture as it relates to the work of the Holy Spirit, And there will be other topics as well by these speakers. You can find more information about this regional conference on our website, g3min.org, and we encourage you to check it out. There are affordable hotel accommodations that we have arranged that you can also reserve. We will be spending two days at a church nearby Washington, D.C., and then the final day on Saturday, we will be at the Museum of the Bible, and a ticket for the Museum of the Bible is included in your registration cost. So check it out. And please do join us September 15th through 17th in Washington, D.C., Just Thinking About the Bible, G3 Regional Conference. As I mentioned, I've received a number of questions on social media and email, and so I'm going to do this episode uh, answering some of those questions, and I hope that it will be helpful to you. The first question involves the participation of children in the worship service. The question reads Greetings from warm Jamaica. Of course, neither you nor I would knowingly have adults who are not saved participating from the platform in a worship service. I am seeing a number of churches, however, where children, saved and unsaved, participate from the platform in the worship service. The children, saved and unsaved, sing in a choir. The children, saved and unsaved, do choral speaking. The children, saved and unsaved, read the scriptures. What are your thoughts? Should this be permissible for children? This is an excellent question. I receive it quite frequently, actually. Uh, It's no secret that I am a strong advocate of letting the little children come to corporate worship. I have a book, of course, on that topic published by Free Grace Press. I advocate for welcoming children of all ages into the corporate worship service, primarily because being in a corporate worship service with their parents and with other God-fearing Christians— is formative for them. It is evangelistic. It will draw them and lead them to Christ. We ought not segregate our children off into their own services where we entertain them or even where we teach them biblical truth. They need to be in the corporate worship service, seeing their parents engaged in what is happening, hearing the words from the pulpit, hearing the hymns, and eventually even participating themselves, even as unbelievers, These are powerful tools that God has given us for the salvation of our children. They can be led to Christ by being in the service and participating with what's going on. But being on the stage is a different matter. It's one thing to be sitting with their parents, listening, participating, being impacted by what's happening in the service. It is another thing to have them up front, singing in a choir, reading scripture and doing other sorts of things. So it's a good question. And I do respect those who would take the position that unsaved, unbaptized children ought not to participate in those ways. The person answering this question is correct. I would object if an unbelieving adult or even an unbaptized adult were to lead in some way from the front in a corporate worship service. In fact, I would be a strong advocate of the idea that largely church members ought to be the ones doing that, with some exceptions. You might have a guest speaker. You might have another non-member who is visiting and is gifted and is well-known as being a committed Christian, and that person might participate in some form of leadership. But largely, it ought to be the leaders of the church and the members of the church who are doing most of the leadership within a corporate worship service. So what about unbelieving children? What about a children's choir, for example? Well, a couple of thoughts here. Number one, we do need to remember that corporate worship is not just about expression. It is about formation and discipleship. In other words, even the people in a choir the people participating in various aspects of a corporate worship service, it's not just about Christians authentically expressing hearts of worship to the Lord. Of course, that is happening and that should happen, but that's not all that is happening. There is also, very importantly, and I would actually argue primarily, formation, discipleship, and even evangelism that is taking place through the preached word, the read word, and the sung word, and even through the the prayers in the service and so again i think it's important for children to participate in the service for their own souls to lead them to christ and i think this can even happen in the context of something like a choir a group activity in which a child is participating not necessarily because he or she is a baptized believer authentically expressing response of worship to the Lord, but because by participating in these acts of worship, they are being led to Christ. In essence, something like a children's choir or even an adult choir is simply a subset of the whole congregation. So if we allow children to participate in the singing of the whole congregation, like I'm not going to put my hand over my four-year-old daughter's mouth when she belts out a hymn and and say to her, you're not a baptized believer yet, you ought not to be singing because this is not authentic for you. No, I, w- I would never do that. In fact, my four-year-old, who I typically have in my arms, does belt out the hymns, and I love it. Not because I think that she genuinely believes what she's singing, but because I think it is forming her. It is preparing the way for her heart to be led to Christ with the truths that she is singing. It is shaping her imagination of God. That's the same for all of the children in a corporate worship service, and it's the same for children within the context of something like a choir. That's not necessarily, quote-unquote, worship leadership. That is something formative and beneficial for that child, leading that child to Christ. I would object to a child sort of leading in other aspects of the service, even scripture reading, certainly other aspects that are clearly leadership, prayer. But when it comes to participating in song, whether it's congregational singing of the whole church or whether it is a subset of the church, personally, I think it is beneficial and formative and evangelistic and disciple-making to have our children participate in those aspects. However, again, I fully respect those who would avoid that to emphasize the fact that it is redeemed believers who ought to be participating in those aspects. A number of questions, not surprisingly, have come in over the last several weeks related to my discussion of The Chosen and my argument that you ought not watch The Chosen. If you haven't listened to my podcast episode on that issue, I'd encourage you to go listen to it. It is largely rooted in the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself any graven images. That's not just a repeat of the first commandment, which forbids the worship of false gods. The second commandment deals with how we ought not to worship. And God specifically forbids worshiping him through a visible representation. So go listen to that episode if you haven't. But several questions have come in related to that issue. One is this. Images of Christ are a no-no, but what about baby Jesus? And then this person references a children's book that I've actually recommended that is published by Good People, where they do have a picture of baby Jesus, and she says it is provoking some discussion regarding images of Christ as an infant. Well, just like I would object to any images of God, I would object to any images of Christ, I would also object on the same grounds to images of baby Jesus. You won't find in our home, for example, a nativity scene or pictures of baby Jesus. Why? Well, when we have discussions about this issue, what always comes to my mind is John Calvin's well-known quote that our hearts are idol factories. We already, as sinful human beings, have a tendency to worship idols, to have our eyes drift off of the God of the Word and drift to visual images. And we naturally, just because of who we are as sinful human beings in the flesh, we naturally tend to worship images. This is the purpose of the second commandment. This is why God gave us the second commandment. Don't worship me or try to come to know me, God is saying, through visual representations. Because God knows the minute that we form a visual representation of him, we will inevitably begin to worship that image rather than him, even if we don't intend it. I think a lot of well-meaning Christians certainly don't intend to worship, for instance, the actor portraying Jesus in The Chosen or in a movie or a picture of Jesus or or a, a crucifix, an image of Jesus hanging on the cross or an image of Jesus on the wall. They don't intend to worship those images, but we cannot help it. We cannot help worship those images. And so I would avoid any images of God, any images of Christ, including images of the baby Jesus. Josh Bice had a good post about this on g3men.org last Christmas season in December. I'd encourage you to go there and read his post. He makes some of these similar arguments. As I mentioned in my podcast episode on the topic of the Chosen, one of the best explanations of the purpose of the Second Commandment is found in J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And Packer argues in that chapter on the Second Commandment Again, within the standard Reformed tradition on the second commandment, that we ought not have any images of God, any person of the Trinity whatsoever. He makes a convincing argument there. I'd encourage you to go read that chapter. Read the whole book. It's a great book, of course. But he makes the argument there that images, visual images, and this is important. I'll make a comment about this in a moment. Visual images obscure God's glory. And he uses the example of the golden calf, which I've talked about on this podcast. The golden calf was not an attempt to worship a false god. They wanted to worship Yahweh, but they were doing so through a visual image. They were trying to show him respect with this mighty golden bull. But nevertheless, it was idolatry. Because we naturally tend to worship the thing that we have created to represent God, whether it be a golden calf or a picture of Jesus or a baby in a manger, rather than the true God. And Packer says, in relation to his example of the golden calf, in a similar way, the pathos of the crucifix obscures the glory of God, for it hides the fact of his deity, his victory on the cross, and his present kingdom. It displays his human weakness, but it conceals his divine strength. So his point is, whenever we have an image, it's going to obscure the true reality of God's glory. And this is even with the baby in a manger. And he goes on to make the point that images mislead us. Visual images like a baby in a manger or a picture of Jesus on the cross or whatever, they are interpretive. They're presenting an interpretation of the God presented in scripture and they naturally and inevitably communicate false ideas about God. And Packer says, psychologically, it is certain that That if you habitually focus your thoughts on an image or picture of the one to whom you are going to pray, whether it be that actor in a TV show or whether it be that picture in a book, he says you will come to think of him and pray to him as the image represents him. Thus you will in this sense bow down and worship your image. You watch the chosen, you fill your mind's eye with that actor's face And then later when you go to pray to Christ, you're not going to be able to help but worship that image. A lot of questions related to this have come in related to biblical images versus visual images, because I've seen people say, well, the Bible is filled with images. Yes, but word images are different than visual images. These are different things. And God has given us word images. God has given us metaphors. These are images that are meant to form our conception of who God is. But when we read an inspired metaphor in scripture, that shapes our inner conception of God. When we look at a picture in a book or we watch a movie or a TV show... The artist, the actors, the directors are forcing an image upon us that, again, as Packer, I think, rightly argues, conveys false ideas naturally about God, obscures God's glory, and leads us to worship the image rather than God himself. Packer, I think, helpfully points out that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses specifically explains the purpose of the second commandment and contrasts words, the commands of the Lord that he has given to us in his word, and visual images. And he points out that making any sort of visual images, whether it be in a book or moving images on a TV show or a movie, distorts who God is, leads us to idolatry, and breaks the second commandment. One person along these lines emailed and said, Of course, I listened to your podcast after I had already watched all of The Chosen. Now I understand the issues and implications of this series and other media. How do you recommend getting the images out of my mind now that they are seared in my memory from watching so many episodes? I would appreciate any insights. Well, I think a couple of things. Number one, stop watching. (laughs) Number two, read the word. Immerse yourself in the word. The more that you are in the word, the more your inner conception of God, your inner conception of the triune God, all three persons of the Trinity, your inner conception of even Jesus will be correctly formed by the sufficient word. Pray and ask the Lord to remove those visual images that were created by watching that actor and pray that the Holy Spirit of God will impress his word upon your heart and upon your imagination to form a correct image of who he is through the word. And then thankfully, you know, our memories are not eternal. Sometimes it takes longer for some people than others, but eventually those images will fade away, especially as you fill your mind with the word of God. Another question related to a recent dust-up over women getting seminary education in degrees that are called pastoral ministry degrees. I saw this recently online, a woman who was flaunting the idea that she got a degree in pastoral ministry, and I tweeted, seminaries should not allow women to have degrees in pastoral ministry, and that created quite a dust-up. One question related to that came in, and the question said this, really appreciate your blogs and even these tweets. It's been a blessing to be able to come to G3 these past two years as well. For the record, I agree with you pretty much on everything, especially The Chosen. Haha. Ha. I'm curious if you mean that for the MDiv. So she's referring to my tweet about women not getting pastoral ministry degrees. Is it okay for women to learn theology with an MA in biblical studies or theological studies at the seminary? Thanks for all your work. God bless you. So this is one of the incorrect implications that people are drawing from my tweet that women should not get degrees in pastoral ministries. I believe it is good. For women to get theological education, to be trained in the scriptures. Uh, even if their aspirations are nothing more than staying home, rearing children, homeschooling children, etc., they ought to be theologically trained and educated and, and robust and have a robust knowledge of theology and scripture so that they can impact their children with that theology. Uh, It's sort of funny, people saying that I don't believe women ought to be educated when, when my own wife has a PhD. She has a PhD from a seminary in Christian education, and she did that for her own personal enrichment. She did that for the education of our children, and she did that because she's able to be a great help to other mothers who are educating their children in thinking through very important biblical and philosophical issues. But it makes no sense for women to get degrees specifically designed for pastoral ministry. Traditionally, the MDiv, the Master of Divinity, was a pastoral degree. It usually includes classes on how to preach, for example. So I encourage women to pursue theological education, biblical education, but do so in a degree that's not specifically designed for pastors. Why would we do that? When the Bible clearly teaches that a woman cannot be a pastor, a woman cannot preach. That is a function of men, not that women are less in value than men. It is simply that God has designed men and women differently and given roles within the family of the church to women that men cannot do and to men that women cannot do. So absolutely, I think women ought to be trained in the scriptures, but not in degrees designed for pastoral ministry. Another question came in, what about vaccines that use aborted fetal cells, which many of them do? Many make the claim that the end justifies the means, but does God excuse the use of the one murdered baby to save the lives of so many? So this is a common question. Of course, the issue of abortion is in the news, and uh, you, you hear this question often. I would say we ought to avoid any medicine, vaccines that use aborted fetal cells. The end does not justify the means. I am not a complete anti-vaxxer. We do have our children vaccinated for some things, but I do object to vaccines that use aborted fetal cells, and I also objected strongly to government-mandated vaccines. I think that needs to be an individual choice. So do your research, find out what vaccines use aborted fetal cells, and sometimes certain vaccines, it depends on the situation, Uh, and there's information out there. I think since this has become a public issue, it's not hard to find. You can find explicit description of how a certain vaccine was created, but do your research. Not all vaccines do, and I think fewer and fewer do because this has become an issue. To create a vaccine, you do need live cells in order to create the virus that that, uh, creates the vaccine, but there have been advancements in the way that this is done to where aborted cells are not necessary, and so do your research. Another question here. I recently received an email asking about whether worship should be only reverent or whether it should express joy. The person says, I am asking for resources on the matter of physical expressions in corporate worship to communicate celebration and exuberance, whether those are ever appropriate, and if so, in what forms. The question arises because our church intentionally focuses on creating an environment of reverence and bowing down, as opposed to exuberance and celebration. I now have some young people suggesting our congregational expressions should be more celebratory and expressive, including physical expressions— If that is to be part of New Testament church worship, then what form should that take? Dancing, clapping, shouting, should our leaders lead in a way that encourages such expression from time to time? So a couple of thoughts. One, I would actually agree that joy and even celebration should be part of corporate worship, although not all of corporate worship, but with the caveat that there are different kinds of joy and celebration, some of which are reverent and some of which are not. In other words, I wouldn't characterize reverence and celebration as opposites, as they are often characterized. But rather, reverence should be a modifying characteristic of the kind of celebration that is appropriate for corporate worship, among other appropriate and necessary reverent expressions like praise, contrition, confession, lament, consecration, thanksgiving, reverence is really a modifier for all of those things, including joy and celebration. But then as to how that is expressed, first, I would say physical expressions are not in themselves wrong. We are physical beings. The body is good. God has given us our bodies. But on the other hand, I would stress that physical expression is never the essence of joy or any other affection. And physical expression should never be the focus or the goal or the aim of anything that we do in corporate worship. In other words, while I wouldn't necessarily discourage physical expression, I mean, I wouldn't slap someone's hand, for example, I would not lead people to express themselves physically as if it is necessary or as if it is the essence of inner affection. I think personality plays a role in this, and I'm afraid that a lot of naturally physical extroverts legalistically demand physical exuberance for those for whom it is actually not natural. And then third, I would suggest biblically that unrestrained expression, which is commonly seen as an axiomatic good in today's contemporary worship, actually runs contrary to the notion of biblical Christian maturity. I question where in the New Testament especially exuberance or unrestrained emotion or even physical expression is found or encouraged. Rather, what you find in the New Testament is that marks of spiritual maturity include self-control, self-restraint, gravity, things like that. In other words, I believe that it is usually spiritual immaturity that results in unrestrained expression, which is actually the opposite of how it is typically expressed in contemporary worship discussions today. The problem is that physical expression has today become almost an unproven and necessary good. But this is more a result of the influence of Pentecostal theology on broader evangelicalism than anything else. I would highly recommend a book I've often recommended on this podcast, Lovin' on Jesus by Lester Ruth and Hong Lim. It is an excellent objective look at where contemporary worship came from, and they show how much of what drives the dominant theology of worship today comes directly from Pentecostal influence, including emphasis on physical expressiveness. Okay, then fourth, I think there definitely is an Old Testament, New Testament shift and discontinuity to take into account as well. And it's best expressed in Hebrews chapter 12, where the author is explicitly contrasting Old Testament worship with its essentially physical characteristics with New Testament worship, in which we are spiritually though not yet physically, joining in with the worship of heaven. This is why the author stresses the need to draw near in faith in chapter 10 and, of course, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, since faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen with our physical eyes or felt with our physical bodies. Since our New Testament worship through Christ is actually participation spiritually with the worship of heaven, we should not expect to see or feel that. In other words, I really believe that this emphasis on the need for physical experience in worship is actually a lack of faith. It is law. It's not grace. And then fifth, regarding a commonly discussed issue of physical expression, raising of hands, I think we need to look biblically at what raising hands was. If you look at Scripture, what you'll notice is that lifting hands in worship isn't typically associated with exuberance or joy or celebration as it is mostly today. Like, usually it's at the high emotional point of a song that the hands go up. But rather, in Scripture, most of the time, lifting of hands is associated with lament and contrition. It's like a child begging their parent for help. That's when we lift our hands. And so if someone is going to insist on lifting hands because of biblical precedent, then it should be in the context of lament, not just when the music happens to soar. And further, something a friend said to me years ago has always struck with me. If we're going to lift hands in corporate worship, then it should be done corporately, not just when an individual's feelings start to tingle. So I know a couple of churches where they sing the doxology in every service and the entire congregation lifts their hands together. It's a corporate act. It's not just some sort of individualistic thing when people have an emotional experience. I would love to see it in churches, for instance, during corporate confession. That's where you see it most happen biblically. I would have no problem with a church that decided to corporately lift hands during a prayer of supplication or a prayer of confession, or even with something like the singing of the doxology. And then finally, with regard to something like dance, I would encourage you to look at John Macagina's book, Measuring the Music. He has an appendix in that book about dance. And I agree with him that, for instance, David's dance before the ark, which is often cited, was number one, a kind of folk dance. It was not Certainly sexual in its expression, but also B, it was not corporate worship, but rather more of a socio-political thing, which of course for Israel was intertwined with their religion. But you'll never find dance in the Old Testament associated with the solemn assemblies of worship. It's more in folk celebrations, like when they crossed the Red Sea or when they brought the Ark back to Jerusalem. Yes, they're praising the Lord because they're a theocracy. I think you can dance unto the Lord in a wholesome way, but not in corporate worship. It's never associated with corporate worship. Some point to Psalm 150 as proof that dance should be part of corporate worship since the psalm begins with a reverence to in the sanctuary, but that's not an accurate reading of the psalm. The point in that psalm is not that everything in the psalm is happening in the sanctuary. Rather, the psalmist is giving a list of contexts in which we are to praise the Lord. Praise him in the sanctuary. Praise him also in his mighty heavens. Praise him also for his mighty deeds. And one of the contexts in which we should praise the Lord is when we participate in social folk dance. This reading is crystal clear when you compare it with the previous psalm, where the psalmist does exactly the same thing. And there in Psalm 149, among his list that includes dancing, is also praising the Lord on their beds, verse 5, and with two-edged swords in their hands, verse 6. So even though Psalm 149, like Psalm 150, begins with, in the assembly of the godly, surely no one would argue that liturgical beds or liturgical sword fights should be part of corporate worship. That's not the point. The psalmist is just saying, praise the Lord everywhere. Whether you're in corporate worship, in the assembly, in the sanctuary, whether you're dancing, whether you're lying on your bed, whether you're in battle, we ought to praise the Lord. And then one final question. Someone emailed, what characteristics would you list as the defining features of traditional hymnody? This is a good question because we have a lot of new hymns being written, things claiming to be hymns. how, How do we classify hymns in the traditional definition? Well, I would give five responses. Number one, hymns are strophic. That is, they have multiple stanzas with the same melody. This aids in congregational singing rather than just being a performance. There is good music written that's not strophic, but it's not congregational. For something to be congregational, it needs to be strophic. You have multiple stanzas, but one melody that can be easily learned. And even refrains, choruses, are not common in traditional hymnody, but they do exist. But these pop conventions of having a bridge or having other added elements that make something more complicated and make something more about a performance, in other words, you really couldn't do it just with a congregation a cappella, you need the band on the stage, That falls outside of how we would traditionally define hymnody. Number two, lyrical content is doctrinal and theocentric. Even more subjective texts in traditional hymnody are more directed toward God or about God than self-referential. So that's not to say you can't have personal pronouns or talk about our response, I sing the mighty power of God, for example. But even in those hymns that talk about our response, the focus is still on God. It's still theocentric. Now, there are many contemporary hymns that I think do satisfy and fit those two characteristics, but they often fail in three more. Number three, in traditional hymnody, tunes are objectively singable. They are a combination of the best of folk qualities and the most accessible of art music. That was Luther's genius during the Reformation. He took some of the characteristics of the traditional folk music of the German culture and combined it with the most accessible elements of art music and formed congregational songs that were singable, objectively accessible, but also beautiful and artistically rich. The singing range of a traditional hymn is typically about an octave, or just over where the tessitura, which is where the melody mostly stays, is not too high or too low. Again, this makes the congregational hymn congregational rather than a performance. And a lot of things that claim to be contemporary hymns today have huge ranges that, yes, a professional trained singer can sing, but not average congregations. So the third characteristic of traditional hymns is that they are objectively singable. Fourth, rhythmically, the tunes of traditional hymns are simple. I think this is one of the key differences between traditional and contemporary tunes. And again, this aids singability. The interest in a traditional hymn tune lies in the melodic contour of the melody and the harmony of, of the hymn interesting and singable melodies have simple rhythm with a lot of interest in the melody itself and the harmony contemporary songs like just in the pop culture have boring static melodies often often practically no harmonic development of all so where they have to create interest is in very complicated rhythm but the problem is that people can't sing it. People can't sing complicated rhythm. People can sing simple melodies with simple rhythm, and then the interest and the beauty is in the melodic contour, a nice shape to the melody, and in the harmony, the rich harmony of the hymn itself. But if the only interest is in the complicated rhythm, then they're not really singable unless you already know it, like from the radio. But they're really not objectively Singable. I think this is an essential difference between traditional and contemporary songs. And then finally, number five, a traditional hymn can be sung without technology or even instrumentation. You can sing it around a campfire. You can sing it a cappella. Contemporary songs, by definition, require technology and require instrumentation. Again, Sui Hong Lim and Lester Ruth make this point in Love and On Jesus, and they're not criticizing it, they're just stating it as fact. Contemporary worship is inherently tied to technology. Like you can't do it successfully without technology, whereas traditional hymnody doesn't need all of that. Well, I'm thankful for this opportunity to just answer some of these questions. I'd encourage you, if you've got questions on any number of things, feel free to reach out by email or social media. I'm not promising that I'll respond by email or on direct message just because of the sake of time that it takes, but I will collect questions like this and in the future have another episode like this in which I answer these sorts of questions. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give it a five-star rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at g3min.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.